I want to invite you guys to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James. Um, as you may know, James is a book toward the very back of your New Testament. Um, we are going to begin tonight what will be, I think, six to seven to eight weeks in this letter. And as we get going, I want to just tell you just a couple of words as to why James. Um, first of all, um, James is one of the general epistles. Okay, what this means is it's a letter in the New Testament that's not necessarily written to any particular church, but instead it's a, it's a letter, a general letter, that's written to sort of the church global. Um, it's written to the church at all times and in all places, particularly churches in the first century world who were struggling pretty seriously um, with persecution, with the pressure of the world, um, just embattled Christians. A second reason that I wanted us to take a look at the book of James is just for the practical wisdom it offers. Um, I was just kind of thinking in my heart and in my soul, just for a new year, just some fresh practical wisdom about the life of faith might be just the right medicine for us. I think a good way to think of the book of James is that it, it really just asks this central question. It, it, the book of James essentially says, okay, yeah, 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 we've, we've sung these things on Sundays and we come to church and we hear about these things, but how is this life of faith supposed to play out for us, I don't know, say tomorrow, in the very real life that we live? And then thirdly, this is a personal reason. The book of James just kind of lives somewhere deep inside of me, and I want to explain that to you. Um, when I was fresh out of college, you know, I was first into adulthood, and there was a man about 10 years older than me who took time to meet with me over the course of, of many months to just help me, for lack of a better term, grow up in Christ. Some of you might call that mature some. And uh, we memorized the book of James together. That's sort of what we did. So these words just, just live somewhere deep inside of me, and I've been kind of waiting for my opportunity of grace to just kind of get into them. So tonight's the night. Um, James chapter 1, I'm going to be reading verse 1 through verse 18, a fairly lengthy section. And before I do that, I want to pair it with a reading from the Old Testament don't, feel, don't worry about turning here, but just listen to this. This is from Isaiah 43. Here's what the Lord says through the prophet Isaiah. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You're precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. And then from the book of James. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him who asks in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures." This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, in these moments and in the moments that are ahead of us this year, Lord, I ask that you would do the thing that only you can do. Lord, by the power of your spirit, would you shine light on these words, some of them hard to explain from your word, and would you use them to great effect in our hearts in our lives to strengthen us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the most important things when you're a preacher or a pastor is to learn how to anticipate what the congregation is thinking when you read words from the Bible, okay? And if I might be so bold, I think I'm pretty good at this. And I'm about to prove it to you. I know what you were thinking when I read these words. I know it already. I mean, you were thinking of the 1987 film directed by Rob Reiner called The Princess Bride, weren't you? I know you were. So there's a or at least that's what I was thinking as I read these words over the last couple weeks. See, there's a place in this film where this one character keeps saying this word. Throughout the story, this character keeps saying this word, and the word is inconceivable. And at a certain point, another character looks at that character and says, you keep saying that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means. And I was thinking that for whatever reason over the last couple weeks, because the New Testament writers keep using a word. It's just that I'm not sure it means what they think it means. 
The New Testament writers will use this word over and over and over again. It's the word joy. So for example, the New Testament writers tell us that some of Jesus' disciples, Peter and James, not this James, but a different James, Peter and James are are beaten because of their faith in Jesus, thrown in prison and beaten, and it says they, they walked away with rejoicing, with joy. A few chapters later, in the book of Acts, we learn that these two people, Paul and Silas, are singing at the top of their lungs with joy. But they're in prison. The same apostle Paul will talk to us about rejoicing, having joy in every circumstance. The writer to the book of he, or the, of the book of Hebrews will say that for the ready joy set before him, the joy set before him, the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. So either the New Testament writers keep using this word and it does not mean what they think it means, or there's another option. This word joy doesn't mean what I think it means or what you think it means. See, here's, here's how I tend to think of the word joy. I'll be honest with you guys. I tend to think joy is happy feelings because things are going the way that I want them to. I tend to think God exists in order to help things go the way that I want it to. But see, that's not what joy is, at least not according to the New Testament, and certainly not according to this letter that James writes. See, joy is a deeper gladness. It's a deeper gladness. It's this deeper posture of our soul because we are gods, no matter what happens to us. And that is what James gets into as he gets into his letter. So listen, here's the main thing I want you to hear tonight as we begin this walk together. If you don't hear anything else, let's say this is the main thing I want you to hear. It's the thing I think James wants us to hear. It's the thing I think the Spirit might want us to hear tonight. And here it is. In Christ, there's joy to be had in trial. In Christ, there's joy to be had in trial because we can endure trial and even benefit from it. There's joy to be had in trial because we can endure it and even benefit from it. And I want to try to make this one simple point to you really in two parts. It's the structure of the first chapter here. First of all, we can have joy in trial. We can endure and benefit in trial because, number one, God is making these trials useful if we will press on and not just press on, like press into them. God's making these trials useful for us if we press on through them and press into them 
rather than avoiding them. And secondly, part two, there's joy to be found in trial because we can endure them and benefit from them because he gives us wisdom if we ask. Now, there's something we tend to do instead of asking him for wisdom, which we'll get into. So first of all, there is joy to be found in trial because God is making them useful. I want to say one quick word before I get into that. If you'll notice, there's verses 9 through 11 that talks about wealth. I'm going to totally disregard that because we're going to talk more about wealth in detail in another part of the letter. So when I skip that, don't nobody freak out thinking I forgot to talk about it, okay? Although that happens often here, it's just not happening tonight, okay? First of all, God is, is making these trials useful if we will press on and press in. Look, at with, me, look with me at verse two. James writes, count it all joy. Okay, this is a word having to do with our thinking. And the New Testament talks about us as whole people. We're thinkers, we're feelers, you know, we're embodied. We live things in our physical bodies. But this word count it, it could also be translated consider it. In other words, James is trying to arm us with a certain way of thinking about our trials. Okay? Count it all joy. Okay? Count it all part of this deeper gladness. This deeper gladness somewhere deep down inside of our souls, knowing that we belong to God no matter what happens to us. Count it all joy. And let's keep reading. When we meet trials of every kind, various kinds, varied trials. Trials, as you know, come in lots of shape and form and sizes in the life of faith. I can look out in this room because of the privileged position I have as the pastor of our church, and I can see trials of various kinds if I stopped and just made eye contact with you. Unique to Grace Fellowship, common to humanity, specific, various kinds of trials. When you hear this phrase, trials of various kinds, you should be thinking about what those things are for you right now. And I think it's precious and and tender and kind that James says, when you meet trials. In other words, they come and find you. You know the phrase, I wouldn't want to meet that person in a dark alley? It's like that. We meet these things. They come upon us. They come looking for us. We stumble upon them. Count it all joy, my brothers. It can be my brothers or sisters and sisters when you meet trials of various kinds. Verse three, for that you know that the testing of your faith. See, these difficult circumstances, these trials are known as trials and they're known as, as tests. They're tests. It's a way to try to prove something. Um, I know someone who works at a car factory. And one time this person was telling me that there's a whole entire section devoted at this car plant to testing. 
okay? It's important to think about this in a certain kind of way because if you think about it, these tests that they run at this car plant are not to try to figure out if it's a car or not. It's a car, but it's an opportunity to prove whether the car can function properly, if it can withstand certain tests in the real world, to see if you can take certain impacts. They have a test in a trial center in order to allow the safety mechanisms and all the different pieces of the car to be proven to function properly. And James wants us to have that framework as a way to think about some of the difficult things in our life. It's an opportunity to us to, for us to be proven as who we are, people who belong to God. Verse three, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and steadfastness must have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is a strong word. Steadfastness has to do with the kind of patience in trial. Okay, these trials are in our lives to produce in us something. In this case, to produce in us this thing called steadfastness. It's, it's a patience, but it's an active patience. It's not a passive thing. And when we go through difficulty in our life, we're not supposed to just simply kind of sit there until it passes. We're supposed to be constantly pressing on, taking a hold of the promises of God actively while we're waiting for it to pass. It's a gritty, active, hard-won kind of thing, this steadfastness. And James tells us that, and this is an exhortation, it's a command, let steadfastness have its effect so that you can be perfect and complete. This is the New Testament phrase for maturity, so that you can be grown to maturity. Okay, the, the New Testament phrase maturity is not an insult. It's not saying you're, you're immature in an insulting way. It's simply saying you're not complete yet. And one of the things God is doing in our lives is completing us. And steadfastness, we have to let it have its full effect. In other words, we might be tempted to shortcut, to bail out before it can have its full effect. What does bailing out on it look like for you? Sometimes we ask the question, where is God in our trials? And it's a fair question. And what this text teaches us is he's actively making us into mature Christians in trial. Now, your follow-up question might be, well, if he's actively making us mature Christians in trial, why does it have to be so hard? Doesn't God have alternative methods of teaching? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever thought that? And I want to be honest. We don't know. Let's skip down to verse 12 quickly before we go back. 
James continues and says, but blessed is the man or the woman, the person who remains steadfast under trial. For when he or she has stood the test, he or she will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. What James wants us to know is if we press on and we press in and we don't bail, there's a great reward. On the other side of our steadfast endurance, there is a great reward. I've told you this a thousand times probably. James's way of saying, on that day, we won't be disappointed. So God is making these trials in our lives useful if we press on and press in. Now here's the second part. He gives wisdom if we ask. Look back up with me at verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him or or her ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Now this word in verse verse five is, if any of you lacks wisdom, it's it's important to know this is not a word that's kind of hypothetical. By the way, if you lack wisdom, you can ask God. It's better translated something like, well, since you lack wisdom, why don't you ask God? Okay. Now it's important to know that wisdom, of course, is different than what we think. See, we tend to think wisdom, when we need wisdom, we kind of think of it more like data points or answers to difficult things. But wisdom, as the Bible explains it from Genesis to Revelation, as James understands it within his letter, is this kind of skillfulness to walk difficult paths. It's kind of a skill in walking a difficult path. It's it's not an easy answer. It's skill in walking a difficult path. So if any of you lacks wisdom, let him or her ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given. This word generously, okay, it's more than just abundantly. It has to do with with an undivided focus. It has to do with the fact that God, God, the Lord, God Almighty, the God of the universe is focused with a sort of undivided attention to the task of doling out wisdom. Now, this is a hard way of speaking about God, but it's almost as if he's just sitting there waiting to give it to us when we ask. He's he's focused in that way. Now, that begs a question. Well, well, I don't know. Why don't we just ask? But I'm going to be honest with you. It's the last thing I think of in trial. Sometimes we, we ask the question in trial, where is God in our trials? And the answer James wants us to know is he's kind of sitting on pins and needles waiting to give wisdom to you. That's where he is. Of course, this is challenging because it's the last thing that I think of and it's opposite of what I typically pray for. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna be honest with you. Here's how Joel Busby typically prays in trial, okay? It kind of has two parts. The first part is, um, could you help everything go better for me? Please. That that was just the first part. The second thing I tend to pray, and and it is, listen to me, it is okay to pray this. 
The second thing I tend to pray is, God, will you please take this away from me? And it is okay to pray that. But I just want to speak a tender pastoral word to you. In my experience, following Jesus since I was about 18 years old, I'll be 40 this summer, and in 17 years of pastoral work in observing the lives of other people, I want to tell you really honestly that God rarely takes trials away. Rarely. Now, he does sometimes, but that is extraordinary. His ordinary way of working is to give us wisdom in trial. And if I can be so bold to tell you, it's even more rare that he takes trials away quickly. It is okay to pray for him to take it away. It is okay to pray for him to give us clear answers, this or that. But most often, he gives wisdom, a skill to walk a difficult path. I wonder if we, as a body, could begin to ask God, Lord, would you give us wisdom for the things happening in our lives? And the scriptures teach us that he is eager to give it. Now, he gives wisdom if we ask instead of what we normally do, okay? And James tells us what we'd be tempted to do instead of asking. Okay, look, look with me at verse 6. But let him who asks, ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven by the wind. So rather than asking God for wisdom, James anticipates what we will often do instead is doubt God. And I want to just say a couple things about the idea of doubt, okay? The Bible seems to have sort of two threads in it with regard to doubt, okay? There is the sincere doubt of God's people when difficult things happen. Okay, the psalmist will do this all the time. How long, O oh Lord, are you going to forget me forever? Okay, that's, that's doubt. That's doubt of the faithful. There's a sincere doubt that we read about in the scriptures when, when Thomas comes up and says, I don't think I can believe this crazy thing unless I actually see and touch your scars. And what does Jesus do? Jesus responds so tenderly and so kindly with those kinds of doubts. Now, there's also a kind of cynical doubting that is almost virtuous in our culture. And that sort of scoffing doubting is something that the scriptures do not encourage. But in this case... I know I just told you all that, but in this case, James actually means something different than either of those things. So when James is using the word doubting in this context, it has to do with divided loyalties. So this is what James is imagining when he says to believe and not doubt. 
What he's imagining is a believer going through trial and, and at the same time kind of being divided in loyalty. He's like, this believer wants to ask God for wisdom, but sort of wants to just sort of adopt and listen to the world's wisdom at the same time. And sort of waffling back and forth between God's wisdom, God's wisdom and the world's wisdom, God's wisdom and the world's wisdom. And see, it says that's like a wave of the sea. Like I'm doing this rocking motion to show you a wave of the sea, okay? This is exactly what James says, that we could turn and have loyalties to other things in our trials. When James uses this word doubt, this kind of divided loyalty, it can even imply the worship of other gods. So James is imagining the believer who's beginning to abandon faith in God to go back to the pagan gods. Now you might say, well, I'm in no danger of worshiping other gods. And I want to say back to you, really? And I want to remind you of the words of the Protestant reformer Martin Luther, and I've told you this a hundred times, but Luther was famous for saying that anything that we hope in or love or fear more than God himself is very much a God to us. So I'm just telling you, I have a tendency to waffle. And and my waffling can look like this. When I undergo trial, I will try to rearrange things quickly to try to please everybody. Okay, that's 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 a really hard thing to do when you're a pastor. I'm just gonna say that. Or when I'm under trial, my waffling and turning to other gods, if you will, is just to find something to sort of ignore it and not have to feel it. And that has looked like all kinds of different things at different points in my life. One of the ways that I waffle is I just start researching everything. If I can just get enough information, then I don't have to feel the hardship anymore. I'm pretty exhausted by all three of those things. The blown and tossed by the wind is just something I think instinctively you know. Mandy and I were staying at a place that was on a waterfront, and when we got up for breakfast to walk down to this place to eat, the waves were going one way. By the time we were done with breakfast, they were going the other way. It's just an aside. It's just a a side I'm just going to say and let's sit there. If you and I were put in like a research lab with all the talent, all the resources in the world to create some sort of thing that would have people waffling and blown and tossed by the wind, we'd probably create social media. Now there's another thing that we might be tempted to do in trial. Besides doubt God, we might be tempted, James tells us, to sin. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to death, and when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. 
Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What James wants us to know is that when we're under trial, rather than asking God for wisdom, we'll either doubt God or we'll blame him. Specifically, we'll sin and then we'll blame him for it. Okay, remember, this is originally what Adam and Eve do in the garden. They sin and they immediately blame him for it. And James wants us to know that that just doesn't work because that's not what God does. He doesn't tempt anyone. He doesn't do that. Let me just, let me just ask you a question. Has this ever happened to you? Okay. Has this ever happened to you? Have you ever under the pressure and stress of life, have you ever allowed that to suddenly make you sin against people around you? Me either. (laughs) Have you ever noticed that when you're under the strain of trial, it is the people closest to you that have to pay for it? See, there's a better way. Ask God for wisdom. Ask God for the skillfulness to walk a difficult path. The main thing I wanted you to hear tonight is in Christ, there is joy to be had in trial because we can endure them and even benefit from them. And the last thing I want to say to you is that in Christ part. Because I want to remind you that in the Bible, wisdom is a person. Scriptures teach us that Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. And I want to just end by speaking the truth about Jesus right to your heart. First of all, know tonight that Jesus has walked the same road as you. A way to understand the gospel stories is to understand them as Jesus walking out what James talks to us about right here. The scriptures teach us that Jesus Christ became obedient by the things that he suffered. In other words, he had to walk the difficult road of maturation too. In knowing that Jesus knows is an unspeakable consolation in trial. Just knowing that he knows. Secondly, Jesus promises his presence in trial in two ways. First of all, he invites us into his body, the church. Scriptures teach that Jesus is the head and we are his body. And as we walk through trial, let it be a reason to hold tighter to his people. Finally, he promises his spirit dwelling inside. 
There is joy to be found in trial in Jesus. We can endure them. We can even benefit from them. And I'm here to tell you tonight as your pastor and friend, that, will, that truth will not make your trials easier. It won't. But it will make them bearable. Let's pray. Lord, these things are just so much easier to talk about from a pulpit than to live tomorrow, and we acknowledge that. So Lord, we ask that these words of wisdom from your word would transform us and make us new creations in some kind of fresh way for the things we will face this week. We ask that you would help us in these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.